Welcome back to another episode of Remyumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called The Ninety and Nine. Thanks for coming back to listen again. I hope that you appreciated the interview that we had last week with Radio Free Mormon. That was an enjoyable experience for me to chat with the extremely intelligent and well-spoken gentleman. I had originally planned on talking about something different today, but as is usually the case, my mind just replays and overthinks things. And there's a lot of stuff that that Radio Free Mormon and I touched on that got my mind ruminating on a number of things. I'm kind of going to, I'm going to break from the normal a little bit. So today we're going to discuss some of the implications and some of the questions that I had from the conversation with Radio Free Mormon. So if you didn't listen to it, please go back, give that episode a listen. It's a little bit longer than my normal ones. But hang tight through it. It's some awesome content. And for those that did listen last week, here is a quick recap. Radio Free Mormon and I sat down and we discussed the leaders of the church and in particular some of the historians of the church and why the church might hire lawyers to represent their history. And we... We discussed that at length, and we focused primarily on the role of a lawyer, specifically a, de- a defense attorney, because that matched with the role that lawyers have when they get placed over the church history department. And it was made clear from some of the quotes and the things that we discussed that the duty of these men is not to present an unbiased history, but to ensure that what is taught and represented is the faith-promoting side of history, whether that's historically accurate or not. The goal is to promote faith. Before I jump into this, uh, Wednesday, now I'm recording this, um, the Thursday before it comes out. So yesterday was Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday kicks off the Lent tradition for the Catholic Church, and I have always loved the phrase that they use, that the priests use when they do the ashen cross on the forehead. For those unfamiliar with the tradition, the uh, the Catholic Church burns the palm leaves from the previous year's Palm Sunday, and they use that those ashes as a kind of kicking off this repentance tradition that they have for Lent. And the the phrase that the priest uses when he draws the cross with the ashes on the penitent's forehead. He says, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I love that phrase. I have always loved that phrase because it keeps firmly in mind our mortality. As an agnostic atheist, I, I think this perspective 
No, I'm I'm flipping this and not using the Catholic or the Christian perspective here. I'm kind of explaining why I love that phrase. This idea of recognizing our own mortality and understanding that nothing is permanent helps us to better understand who we are. And I, I just love, I love this celebration. That was originally what I wanted to talk about today. But I, I'll save that for another day. I, I really need to do um, this whole concept of eat, drink, and be merry because I think that that is the goal in life. <laughs> now, back to the subject at hand. The parable of the lost sheep is in a couple of places in the scriptures, and Matthew and Luke both have a, a retelling of it. For this one, I'm going to read the Matthew version. This is Matthew 18, 12 to 14. And this is something that probably a lot of you are familiar with, but I I think this is fascinating. And the reason I'm going to read this is because it illustrates an important contrast between the way the gospel is taught in the scriptures and the way that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints practices it. So here's what it says. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety and nine others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the ninety-nine that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. Those that have deconstructed and left religion behind, put on your believer's hat. We all have one. We all remember exactly what it's like to be in the church and to read these scriptures and believe in them. And the reason I'm telling you to put on your believer's hat for a sec is because I want you to think about the way that this is presented in contrast with the way that the church is run. Now, there's a couple of ways that I want to connect this scripture to what we're talking about. But the first one I want to say is when someone leaves the church, when someone wanders from this path as described here in the scriptures, the instruction that Jesus is giving here is for the leaders of the church to leave the fold, to leave the believers and go seek out the one person that that wandered away. And then the question I have is, is that the way the church has behaved with the members of the church that have left? The way I see the reaction that the church is having to members leaving today is they're doing the opposite. They're circling the sheep even tighter and trying as hard as they can to prevent them from leaving. That's why we have these European rescues, you know, the the Swedish rescue and the recent one for all of Europe. And they the leaders of the church are going around and trying to inoculate the members to the uncomfortable history of the church and encourage them to stay in the group. When the example that Christ gives here is exactly the opposite. Jesus in this story left the the organization. He left the 90 and 9 and he went to go and help the ones that fell away to bring them back. As I said, we've got our believers hats on for a minute. If that's the instruction, why are the church leaders not following through with it? That's a question that I don't have an answer to, but it has stuck in my mind and I've been thinking about that because the, the subject or the, the whole point of my discussion with Radio Free Mormon last week was to clearly delineate 
who the church represented. And that, for me, is exactly why they don't leave the 90 and 9. The church does not represent the congregation. The leaders do not represent the congregation. And when I say leaders, I don't mean local leaders, because there are a lot of really good people in the church. I'm referring to the the Quorum of the Twelve and the highest leaders in the church. They represent the organization, and they are looking after the best interests of the organization. The, uh, the scripture, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Could we use the phrase, the church is made for man? and not man for the church? And if that were the case, would it look like what it looks like today? Is man made for the church? Because that's the way it's being run. That's the way the organization is operating. So we're going to think big picture here for a sec. If the church is made for man and not man for the church, would the church only represent or would the leaders of the church only represent the believers or would they represent everyone i've just got a series of questions today the way i process this stuff is i i just ask questions over and over that's kind of one of the things that i that's the way that i ruminate and for a lot of these i don't want to give the listener an answer you can think about it whether you're a believer or a non-believer Come to your own decision on what an answer to these questions might be. Let's say, for example, that Russell M. Nelson, prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, represents the whole world. His stewardship is the whole world. Do Do his actions back up that sort of a statement, that sort of an ideology? If the church represented the whole world, would they hoard their massive amounts of money? Would they use those funds to help make this world a better place? If Jesus came down today and started running the organization, again, keep your believer's hat on for a minute. I'll tell you when to take it off. If Jesus came down and were running the organization himself, would it run the exact same way that it's being run by Russell M. Nelson and the leaders of the church? If Jesus had access to hundreds of billions of dollars, what would he do with it? What would he do with it? My biggest problem with the argument that this is a rainy day fund or that this is a a sum of money that we're going to use in the millennium or in the next existence. Again, I don't believe that those things will happen. We're keeping our believer's hat on. Money doesn't exist or have intrinsic value in itself outside of the value of the metal or the paper that it's printed on. Money is a representation of labor And this labor that it represents is a means for facilitating easier exchange between people. So instead of a cobbler having to trade his shoes to get apples, to trade for milk, to get 
to trade for eggs and, and a long chain of things of, of this barter system. Money simply facilitates the exchange of labor for goods in an easier way than it was done in the past before currency was invented. It does not have value in itself. If the millennium were real and if it were going to happen, it is so silly to assume that currency would be necessary or even be a thing that people needed in a perfect world. <laughs> if a utopian society existed, why would they need money? Wouldn't everyone just take care of each other and help each other? And just do the work that they needed for their society or their culture? Isn't that the utopia that's described in the scriptures? So why would they need any money at all? Now, back to the question I posed. If Jesus were in charge of the, of the church today, and he had access to hundreds of billions of dollars in both real estate and investments, what would he do with that money? There's a lot of problems with this. I get it. He was from a different time period. He actually was more, most likely an apocalyptic prophet that was preaching the coming end times and on oftentimes told people to sell all their belongings to get ready for the end times. So I get that we're taking Jesus a little bit out of context. So what I'm more referring to is this deity of Jesus that people have, that the Church of Jesus Christ has built up in their minds, and this, this God that they worship. If this all-compassionate, all-loving God ran the church, what would he or she do with a hundred billion dollars. Now to contrast that, let's say the leaders of the church represent the organization and not the members, and they have access to hundreds of billions of dollars. Would they act any differently? And this is the point I'm trying to make. Their behavior, both with hiring lawyers to represent the historians and and promoting lawyers within the ranks of the, of the 70. It's fairly clear that their goal is to preserve the organization. Their behaviors indicate that this is their top priority. The longevity of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The last point that I want to make on this is this, this concept of the duty to, to the tribunal that Radio Free Borman presented. The, the idea of this, for those that, that didn't listen to the previous episode or perhaps have forgotten this aspect of it, the duty to the tribunal, specifically this duty when both the defense and the prosecutor are not present. And in this case, the connection was with the church representing itself, but not representing itself fully. Now, the way Radio Free Mormon expressed this was that the defense attorney in this situation would have the duty to make sure that he presents both sides of the argument or presents the facts correctly, even the uncomfortable ones, because the prosecutor is not present. And this is precisely what's missing when the church proselytizes and shares itself both with non-members and with members. I, I don't have an idea in my head that they would ever 
try and spin it in a, a neutral way, they're going to promote the organization. And that's fine. I get that. But nothing even remotely resembling accurate history is ever presented anywhere. The uncomfortable aspects of church history are never discussed. The logical inconsistencies of deity and sin and eternal punishment are never discussed. This concept of the devil's advocate is missing. When missionaries go out into the world and preach the gospel, they are not preaching accurate history. They are preaching beliefs that they hold. But it's not even on the missionaries because they don't know the uncomfortable history. They don't know that they have been intentionally misled in order to further promote the faithful retellings of these events. So what would that look like? Let's say a full-in active believing member wants to do their best to present things accurately, but also in a faith-promoting way. What would that look like? The way the church is taught to the members when they're young, I think is fine. It's faith-promoting. We simplify the stories. That's okay. But as people grow up and become teenagers, young adults, and then adults, these stories never change. They're never presented in an accurate way. Now, the question that I asked early, I asked Radio Free Mormon early on in the episode was about a lawyer who is representing a client, but this lawyer knows that the client has committed two murders, one murder that he's, he's convicted and being tried for, and another murder that the prosecution doesn't know anything about. The church history and the leaders of the church representing these lawyers, these defense attorneys, in my mind, these vaults that they have where they store the documents that just will never see the light of day in the church history department and that, you know, Joseph, Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith kept in his office. Those are these other murders. That is this other damning information that will never see the light of day because the church is not on trial for that. But you could take it a step further. We could, we could apply it directly to things that, that are known as well. We could say the church is promoting Joseph Smith as a prophet, seer, and revelator, but the leaders fully know that he was a convicted con man. They know that. Whether they believe he was a prophet or not, they are familiar with the uncomfortable history that he was a charlatan. Now, do they have a duty to present that to the membership of the church? If their goal is to engender faith, when should they say that Joseph Smith was a charlatan, was a convicted con man before becoming a prophet? When they talk about polygamy and talk about it being inspired from God, whether you believe that it was inspired or not, these leaders of the church know the coercive tactics that were used to ensnare women in polygamy. And that is an uncomfortable thought. As defense attorneys for the church, if you will, it's not in their best interest to present any of that information ever. But wouldn't 
if we're going to continue with this whole defense attorney line of reasoning, wouldn't they have some sort of duty to at least discuss it? Are you ready to get uncomfortable? <laughs> we'll do this on the flip side too. For those of us that have left, when we're discussing with our family members that are still in, when we're discussing with, with our friends that maybe we're never members of the church, do we present the whole picture? Do we present the good and the bad? When we talk to our families, do we acknowledge the, the good things that the church does do? Turning it introspectively like that can be tough. Looking at the way that we present arguments and the way that we discuss things with our friends and family. When we expect other people to have the same candor with truth, whether it's good for your argument or bad for your argument, if we expect that of other people, we need to also hold those same ideas. And this concept right here is largely the motivation for the tone of the podcast that I'm producing. Sorry if today's episode was a little bit rambly. I had a bunch of disparate, disconnected thoughts after, after chatting with uh, Radio Free Mormon. I didn't provide answers for a lot of the questions that I asked today, and that was intentional. For many of the questions I asked, I don't think that there are faith-promoting answers. I don't, I don't see any, but I'm not opposed to hearing from a believer that might have come to a different conclusion. If that's you, if, that, if that's where you stand, reach out to me. I would love to hear how you might answer some of these questions about the church and who it represents. Do the leaders of the church represent the congregation or the organization? Because when we understand who they represent, their behaviors make so much more sense. The leaders of the church do not represent the people. They represent the organization. But as I said, if you disagree with me, please, please let me know why. Why do you think that the leaders of the church represent the membership or the world, the people of the world? Isn't that ideally who the prophet should represent? <laughs> anyway, I said I've, I've been a bit rambly today. <laughs> I apologize for that. Thank you to those who listened to last week's episode. And thanks for any new listeners that might be here because of the interview with Radio Free Mormon. Welcome to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I've got lots of previous episodes. This episode is uh, number 41. So I've got, I've got an interview that's going to come out next week with the incredibly intelligent Michelle Larson. She's a woman that I met at the local Thrive event here in Portland, Oregon. And we had a fascinating discussion. And so the, the next week, it's going to be a little bit more spiritual than I have been in a, in a while. And yes, I am in the camp that you can be a spiritual person and be an, an agnostic atheist. If that's contradictory to you, well, maybe give the episode a listen and uh, see what you think afterwards. So that's what you have to look forward to next week. The subject of our, our discussion is going to be the feminine divine. And we're going to talk a little bit about polarities. I'm really excited for you guys to, to hear that one. Hey, wherever you find yourself right now, driving, eating a sandwich, working on in the backyard, I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>